difficult to keep the line between the past and the present. Do you believe that someone out of the past can enter and take possession of a living being? We may be through with the past, but the past is not through with us. Welcome to The Next Picture Show, a Movie of the Week podcast devoted to a classic film and how it shaped our thoughts at a recent release. I'm Scott Tobias, here with Keith Phipps and Tosh Robinson. Genevieve Kosky is behind the boards tonight, hiding from Darren Aronofsky metaphors, but she'll be back next time. Here on The Next Picture Show, we believe that no film exists in a vacuum and that all culture is more interesting in context. So every other week, we get together to talk over a classic film and consider how it relates to a current movie. We usually express our gratitude to Delmark Records for allowing us to record at their home base, Riverside Studios, but this week, we can't seem to find our way out. All we need to do is just open the door to the studio and leave, but something is keeping us pinned to these microphones. Tasha, what could it be? I actually have no idea, but the excuse that I'm going to give is that we're recording a podcast and we can't leave until we finish recording because that's how podcasting works. Oh, I see. If you're feeling a little confined, though, this week's pairing might explain it. In Darren Aronofsky's new film, Mother, Jennifer Lawrence is stuck in a creepy old estate in the middle of nowhere while a series of bizarre, inexplicable events drive her to the brink of madness. Based on the trailer and the poster, we originally thought a pairing with Roman Polanski's Repulsion or Rosemary's Baby might be the obvious choice. But after seeing the movie, we were surprised to discover a premise and tone that's closer to the surreal black comedy of Louis Buñuel. So we've decided to pair it with Buñuel's 1962 classic, The Exterminating Angel, about a fancy dinner party where the guests can't leave, and they gradually descend into madness and savagery. How long till that happens to us, Scott? Well, I've already torn up the floorboards and started a fire, Tasha. But while we still have some grip on our sanity, we should use this time to debate two provocative, controversial films. First up, we're going to talk about The Exterminating Angel and how Louis Buñuel's deadpan satire and surrealism reveals disturbing insight into human nature. Then, later in the week, we'll bring in Mother, Darren Aronofsky's allegorical horror film about God, art, and the perpetual cycle of creation and death. But for now, tuck your chicken feathers and rooster feet into your handbag. It's going to be a bumpy night. Early in Louis Buñuel's The Exterminating Angel, the morning after the guests at a dinner party wake up in the same room together, unable to leave, a woman compares her disorientation to her experience on a train derailment. She emerged from the incident unscathed, but in her words, quote, a third-class car full of village folk was squashed like an accordion. She goes on to admit that, quote, the misery of those wretches didn't move me, and a friend gives an understanding nod. I think the lower classes are less sensitive to pain, she says. Conversations like this drip with acid, revealing a contempt for bourgeois elites that Buñuel expressed often in his career. It's also an example of his sense of humor, which is so dry that the laughs tend to stick in the throat. Yet at the core of this scene is an insight into how some members of the upper class think, they assume they're better, more civilized people than the wretches whose lives are beneath consideration. They feel they've earned their social status through their intelligence, sophistication, and general superiority, and hardship is foreign to them because of it. The exterminating angel presents a stiff test of those presumptions. Over the course of the days and weeks and perhaps a month that these wealthy guests are trapped in a single room, unable to leave, they have all their privilege stripped away from them. The same people who turned up in top hats and mink coats are smashing the walls with an axe to get water, roasting sheep over a fire made of pulled-up floorboards and broken furniture and repeatedly coming to blows. In Buñuel's universe, they're given the cosmic punishment of turning into society's wretches. 
As one character says, quote, Everything I've hated since I was a child, rudeness, violence, filth, are now our inseparable companions. Yet the exterminating angel isn't entirely a broadside against the ruling class, or at least it's less predictable than that. It's a film full of peculiar, mysterious impulses, like the sheep and bear cub that wander the house, or the disembodied hand that skitters out of a closet, or an ending that finds the authorities opening fire into a crowd. Working late during his period in Mexico, in exile from the Franco government, Buñuel has a strong anti-fascist, anti-elite agenda, but he pursues it with a sense of surprise and surreal whimsy that's more art than politics. His vision of anarchy could not be mistaken for anyone else's. So, right off the bat, what did you think of The Exterminating Angel? This isn't my first rodeo with The Exterminating Angel. This is honestly, this is my favorite Buñuel, and it's mm-hmm. one of my all-time favorite films. I'm just very fond of this movie. And this time through, I tried to make more of an examination of why that is. On one level, it's just I, I, one of my least favorite things in the world is entitlement. Like, I think entitlement is at the base of just about every bad human impulse that we get in terms of, of racism and sexism and classism, all of the abuses that people heap on each other. I I think, stem from that baseline urge of I'm better than you because I'm blank. So watching him dissect it in such a an interesting way is just really satisfying. But the way he does it, this like combination of like a magical realism, a sort of surrealism and the absurdity he brings to it, I think is just is really entertaining and really solid. And I think the individual characters are interesting and the way it plays out is just exciting and horrifying in just a really visceral way. Mm-hmm. It's actually was my first radio with uh, this particular Buñuel. I feel like I've seen a lot of Buñuel, but somehow not this one. And there's well, there's a lot to see. It's a pretty extensive filmography. But I mean, yeah, it was, I, it was a terrific movie. I mean, I think part of what makes it work is exactly what you're talking about, the sense of privilege being, being stripped down, but also the refusal to be simple about it. These are, you know, these aren't necessarily all bad people at heart. And as absurd as the scenario is, the reactions register as how humans would really react in such a situation, which makes it both, I think, a funnier and a scarier film. Yeah, that's actually an interesting point now that I think about it. I, I mentioned in the uh, intro about them having to you know, axe the walls in order to get at the water in the pipes and having to lure a, lure sheep into the room so they can roast it over a spit. I mean, these are things that, that I guess not awful human beings would have to do, but they are... Uh, is certainly a humbling experience for people who are not used to any kind of adversity at all. But I think if the film had been just raw contempt, I don't know if it would be as strong as it is, even though, even though, as Tasha said, I mean, there is something really satisfying about watching these people struggle a little bit. Uh, but it's just full of so many surprising moments and little, you know, surrealist sequences and dream sequences and... You know, occasional moments of grace, you know, that ending, which is surprising on another, a lot of different levels. Buñuel isn't working in a really tidy 
way in this is as disciplined as this scenario is, you know, keeping all of these characters in this room and, and having it escalate as it does. There's still so much room for him to surprise you and improvise. And it's kind of an exciting movie. Scott, you and I both saw uh, Michael Haneke's new movie, Happy yes. End at TIFF. And we've, we talked a bunch about that, about how that movie is uh, just a very, very baseline, obvious takedown of the bourgeoisie mm-hmm. and, and of elitism and privilege. And it's kind of boring. Um, It seemed like for both of us, it was kind of an insight into the degree to which you can agree with a film's premise and still find it really dull if it's a movie that doesn't approach the things that you believe in a a remotely interesting way. I mean, that's something that, you know, not to get too sidetracked, but that's something that that Hanukkah has done his whole career. I mean, his film has attacked the bourgeoisie over and over again but there's always that other layer mm-hmm. uh, suspense or you know if you think of something like cachet or even funny games which i know you hate or or the seventh continent his first film there's always some other element at play rather than just straight up contempt and and uh, i think you see in the exterminating angel there's a fullness to it and a spontaneity everything is is unexpected and there's something i mean really i've seen it i've seen this film a couple times i don't know if i've seen it as many times as you have Tasha, but it is a perpetually exciting experience to watch it again and again because there is just so much packed into it. And again, I, th- I think part of what makes it work is these characters are kind of unaware of their own alienation and distance from people who aren't in the same class, and, and it doesn't even really dawn on them that this is a thing. And I don't think I don't even think by the end of the scenario it does either. I'm not sure anyone learns any lessons over the course of this film. No, they wind up in a church, and then <laughs> which I guess allows Bunuel to switch. Focus to another institution. Yeah, that change, he does let's that. change targets. <laughs> yeah, he just changes. He just changes target. But so I was curious, just as a baseline, how much you've seen of Buñuel's work and, and where this might fit into his filmography. I think relatively little compared to Keith. Certainly, I mean, I've seen the big classics: uh, Discreet Charm of the Bourgeoisie, Obscure Object of Desire, Anchien en Lou. I guess I would have to look through his filmography. Oh, of course, Belle du Jour. Mm-hmm. I've seen kind of the high points, but not really uh, a lot of the, the smaller films or the earlier films, apart from Shan, which is, I mean, you're not allowed to come and get through film school without seeing that. But <laughs> uh, Keith, like, what, what am I missing? What, what do I really need to see out of his filmography? Um, well, there's a, there's a bunch I haven't seen, so I'm not necessarily the expert to talk to. But I mean, the one, there's one close to this called, called Simon of the Desert, which is yeah. a really interesting film that, that kind of... Uh, it's only 45 minutes, too. Yeah, it's very short. You can watch it, watch it over lunch break sometime. Mm-hmm. But it's, it implies lunch. some... Sort of sort of the, yeah, sort of the same like sort of like offhand surrealism of this uh, to a, a a biblical story, quote unquote biblical story. Yeah, it's 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 quite good too. But I mean, the obvious companion piece to this is the one you have seen, which is Discreet Charm of the Bourgeoisie. Mm-hmm. That's the one with the dinner with her. With the kid, it doesn't happen. They're perpetually trying to have <laughs> yeah. dinner together. It's it's literally the opposite of this. Yeah, yeah. it's still a takedown of the bourgeoisie and their pretensions and their yeah. elitism. But it's about groups of people trying to get together for dinner, and and it never quite happens. Yeah. I've seen a bunch of Buñuel's uh, movies. I mean, but I, in terms of pertinence to this, it definitely is that. Those two films are companions, though I certainly would recommend. I, I really like Land of Without Bread. I mean, I think that's just, that is a really rough film, but fascinating in terms of the way uh, it plays with the documentary as a, as a form and, and what we consider real on screen. And I'm, I'm as far as his Mexico period is concerned, I'm a big fan of a movie called Los Olvidados, uh, which is about uh, street kids in Me- Mexico, and there and he's it's got a very interesting perspective. It's very unsentimental. Uh, these kids are often, you know, committing crimes. I mean, it's a very tough, tough movie, but uh, but also full of 
the grace and wonder and um really worth checking out but yeah i'm just uh, but i think in terms of this movie i think there's a certain type of film that he made throughout his career that this more fits into yeah and i mean this one also uh, that obscure object of desire i think loops in with the trilogy as well because it's it's yet another film about somebody trying over and over to to get one thing that he feels entitled to in this case sex with a woman that he's attracted to and he keeps getting turned away or getting lost in the same kind of sort of surreal nightmarish kind of way i think all three of those movies have kind of a baseline idea of living in a literal nightmare that, that kind of dreamlike experience where you're after something specific and it keeps receding from you and you keep sort of forgetting why it's there or why you're looking for it and then coming back to it. And the desire itself becomes this sort of agony that you can't relieve because you can't, you can't figure out how to relieve it. That obscure object of desire reminds me of another connection to Mother, but we'll get into that. Oh, <laughs> okay. yeah. Yeah. It's, it's very much of a piece. Yes. I mean, so, I mean, the film is an allegory, but for what? <laughs> and, what and what does what does the film have to tell us about civilization? I feel like I'd probably appreciate this film on an even deeper level if I knew more about Franco's Spain and the history. And there are probably some specific references and specific character types that I'm, I'm going to miss just not being as, as well-versed in that. But I mean, the obvious thing is the ruling class, the privilege, the people who are out of touch. I mean, we don't have those in our history anymore, but at one point, <laughs> they were very, very much the controlling force in, uh, in, in society. Yeah, and they're not really going to care from one administration to the next what what actually happens to ordinary people, too, right? right? I mean, they're so cloistered off that it really almost – I mean, again, I, I, I think you're right. Uh, you know, if, if you had more of a historical context, you might be able to get more out of it. But you almost don't need any in a way because this is a story that gets told all the time in terms of who the elite classes in many countries led by despotic rulers and how they either look away or are actually a, a party to atrocity. It uh, would be hard to remake this film now and in any number of different spots around the world. That's very true, including this one. Including this one. Um, I didn't want to get too political here, guys. Yeah, that I was mean, <laughs> himself uh, like had put a warning on the film that uh, it didn't adhere to any kind of reason or, or interpretation, and I don't believe him. No, <laughs> I mean, it just it seems so straight up, clearly metaphorical, especially when compared to like his early incredibly surrealist stuff. This has a narrative, it has a flow, and it just it appears to have a direct target. One of the things that I enjoy most about it, I think, is the distinctive way people make up excuses for their behavior, for their inexplicable behavior. Mm -hmm. And when you say, what does this teach us about society? I think more than anything, what this film teaches us about society is the way people find ways to justify whatever it is that they're doing, especially (laughs) whatever it is that they want to be doing. And I just, uh, one of my favorite sequences is the sequence where everybody is inexplicably not leaving at four in the morning. They're taking off their tuxedo jackets, which is absolutely unthinkable. And the women are lying down on couches. This would be night one then. Night one. Just not leaving the original party. And the hosts are sitting in the corner saying, how rude they're all being. This is unheard of. This is unspeakable. Let's do what they're doing. But we're we're doing it to excuse their behavior. And people keep going to the door and then not leaving. But they always have an excuse. They always make up some reason to make what they're doing seem rational. And it isn't until 
like the next morning, long after it should have occurred to somebody, that they start realizing that there's something going on that they can't just wave away. And even so, throughout the film, they continue to make excuses for themselves to make it make sense. Yeah, I was grateful that, that there wasn't a literal force field that, they, <laughs> that, they, that was blocking them or some physical thing that they could get past. Some sort of exterminating think, angel standing in the doorway. It's yeah, creepier so. oh, the way it is, though, isn't it? No, it's, it's much better. They can't will themselves out the door. It's, it's, yeah, yeah, it's, it's much better that way. I, and I'm, I was relieved that they were just making excuses like that rather than actually you know, pounding on some sort of invisible shield. So that was a relief. The other th- point I wanted to make in terms of like what this tells us about civilization is just is what what happens to humans, not just members of the upper class, but but all humans when civilization or when the expectations of how the when, social uh, contract. Yeah, when it, when that just breaks down, you know, and and, and people are under duress, um, the protections that they have, which of course for the upper classes are much greater than the, than the lower classes, when those go away, how do people respond to that? I mean, um, and it, it feels very true to what kind of response that would be. And, it, and it's something that, that these folks at the beginning of the movie, they would look down on people for reacting in this manner to desperate circumstances. But of course, you know, when they're faced with these circumstances, they react the way they do or, or worse. I mean, they behave worse than they should, than even they should. So I find that fascinating. Yeah, they, I mean, they react to each other. This was eight years after Lord of the Flies was first published. And it's a very Lord of the Flies scenario mm-hmm. where it, the, they move in the a direction of kind of every man for themselves, especially when the water first comes out. But at the same time, I, I think it's really interesting that they, they pick at each other in what they would see as a lower class kind of way, you know, shoving and clawing at each other and, and fighting for what little resources they have and going after that sheep. But they also pick at each other in a very elitist upper class kind of way where they just ding each other's manners and call each other names in a, a politely acidic drawing room kind of way. You know, it is, it's not done for one of them to turn to the other and say, you smell like a hyena. Uh, <laughs> you know, that is that is breaching the bounds of etiquette. But there are other places where they, they just turn to each other and say sort of, uh, you know, acidic, like, how dare you behave in such a manner kind of way. There's still holding on to all of these pretensions of how their class behaves, even as they're, you know, pooping in vases in the closet. <laughs> that is in the vase. That's one of my one of my fa- favorite bits of the movie is when uh, when a character takes a bunch of flowers out of a vase and can, they consider uh, drinking whatever uh, horrible flower water is inside. It's not that bad. <laughs> no. And then promptly turn around and say, well, the servant it doesn't seem to have a problem with it. Right, like the yeah. servant can drink that water. I am very curious what you guys make of the whole – there's a sequence where the women have all been using the the bathroom vases and they all come out and have a little exchange about how there's like fresh mountain air blowing out of them and there was an eagle soaring by below one of them like 40 feet below. I have no idea what to make of that. Yeah, me neither. I, that was a closet of mystery, wasn't it? <laughs> yeah, I think the mind kind of willing itself to escape maybe or just a no, bit of unseen surrealism that's just described and not depicted. Yeah, maybe. That, yeah. that was bad by that so no answer for that question. What, what about the severed hand i mean i know it's a shenandelu reference but yeah. ap- apart from that there's a severed hand creeping around and eventually somebody stabs it what well it's only one person though right it, yeah, and it, she's hallucinating yeah so i think we can take it at that and then but then she, she breaks out of that hallucination and people are watching her trying to stab her own hand right oh i think she's trying to stab somebody else's hand because there's somebody else that like pulls away and is like oh, okay. weeping hysterically okay but ne- nevertheless, ne- nevertheless it is a I think we can mark that up as entirely her hallucination. But what a great thing to just put in this movie. What a strange nightmare yeah. on, on top of this much more like 
literal linear nightmare. And, and also you get, you get whimsical things like the bear, like the little bear cub <laughs> scurrying around in the other room. Sometimes a person in a bear suit, rather obviously, but that's kind of adds to the uh, adds to the effect, I think. Person, oh, I thought it was. I thought that effect was well handled. Keith, I did yeah. not see any <laughs> humans. <laughs> So what do you make of the style of the film and the tone for that matter? I think the tone, one of the things about the tone is just like the dryness of the humor. I One of the gags I always forget is the business where the hostess tells everybody that one of the main courses is coming out first and they all compliment it. And then the waiter trips and drops it. Uh-huh. And half of the room thinks it's like a hilarious joke that she's put on. And you as an audience member are thinking – Oh, this is him taking down the the elitists because they don't know how to interpret like what they've seen. But then it it kind of seems like the hostess did plan that as a gag because oh. when the one man says, you know, I didn't find this funny, she immediately slips off to the back and she doesn't like upbraid the servants for dropping the food. She says she basically says, okay, cancel the bear cub. <laughs> you know, Mister So and So doesn't doesn't like jokes, mm-hmm. so we're gonna we're gonna not do the bear cub after all. <laughs> Leave the sheep, put the sheep someplace else. This is before the movie really gets strange. Yes, yes. Oh, yeah, it's fine. We just take for granted that that the evening's entertainment will involve a bunch of sheep and a bear cub. Yeah, so, I mean, that's just sort of an early indication that you maybe can't fully trust anybody's behavior because there's a both a level of, like, weird Bunyelian whimsy going on and a level of pretense among the, the dinner guests themselves. There's also that the business where the servants are trying to escape and everybody enters the hallway. They, they duck back behind a door as, uh, like, all of the, the guests stream in and decide to go upstairs to doff their coats. And then once everybody's gone, they start to go out, but everybody's coming in again. And it's just – it's a straight repetition of that shot of people coming in. Yeah. So that, that happens twice too, right? There's at least at least one more moment of repetition. Yeah, I think exactly I, I think I, I think yeah. there's a moment like a toast. I think mm-hmm. that where where that, that is repeated. Yes. Yeah, and yes, people right. respond differently the second time. Right. From what I've read, there are 27 different sequences of repetition in hmm. the film. I didn't well, do. I didn't a, notice anywhere near that many, but yeah, I didn't do a straight count. But it definitely there's definitely things that happen multiple times. And I think in terms of tone and style, the standout element for me is that he never underlines anything. It just happens. The whole thing is matter of fact and very, 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 very dry to the point where I I don't know if I laughed out loud during the film at all, but I think it's a very funny movie. (laughs) It's that kind of experience. He doesn't elbow you in point and say this is funny it just happens and and it's and it's often weird and inexplicable and often very acidic but still matter of fact that standout image to me is the one shot of the room that they're all in shot from the next room over and it's kind of beneath the the arching doorway and oh, right. it's lit in a really interesting way but it kind of you know it drives home the fact that there's nothing keeping them in there uh, except for whatever it is that's keeping them in there it's scary it's a, it's a very unnerving image in the midst of all this you know very dry satirical humor i mean the, the horror of the moment is, is not uh lost on this film it also reads like a stage proscenium. Yes. The shape of that that doorway arch looks very much like the opening to a stage. And every time we back off like one room to look into that room and see how they're continuing to behave, I kind of expected to see an audience sitting in the first room watching them because it feels so so staged. It feels like you're you're looking you're in the zoo looking in on the animals. You're sitting in the audience looking in on the presentation. 
there's a shot too when they've finally kind of figured out how to get themselves out of this predicament where it's just everyone is just frozen in tableau. Did you notice this as when well? When they're recreating the original, when they're recreating yeah. it, and everyone is just is just frozen, and he holds it like that in kind of a media long shot. I think it's a really fascinating shot. And I, and I think this is a really tough film to pull off cinematically because you know you do have you know largely a one room setting and and all of these characters packed within it and you have to give both a sense of of the space being crowded but also be able to move the camera around to to catch a lot of individual moments too so uh i think the mise-en-scene is a is very strong in, in the film oh yeah and yeah. particularly watching the space deteriorate as they start taking everything apart and everything within their space gets wrecked yeah which if you want to see everything in this film as a metaphor the metaphor of, of the elites kind of chewing on each other and destroying their own environment heedlessly because of their appetites is also a pretty heady symbol yeah and i love that shot of what when they have the fire going of uh, there's a, another kind of me- medium long shot where the uh, room is you can see the room just filling with smoke while they're just standing there and it's just, it's such a striking image but again he's not a, he's not that showy uh, director i mean there are some a couple of really striking surrealist uh, dream or, you know sequences or dream sequences in the movie but um the craft here is is pretty subtle for the most part mm-hmm. it's more strange things happen than than strange images you know crafted to appear strange for sure so i was curious to ask you all if you've thought about how you'd behave in a situation <laughs> like that because we i've made the point before that buñuel is attacking the bourgeoisie here but uh he could also uh be said to have made a film about human nature yeah i mean that's part of why it works too is you, you have to put yourself in that scenario and and if you i think if you're a reflective at all person you're not just going to say i would not behave like that because you know you don't know this is a desperate situation you might i like to think i would not eat you scott oh thanks but if driven to it yeah. maybe i would I don't know. From where I'm sitting, you're looking pretty tasty. And we've only been <laughs> podcasting for like 25 minutes. Yeah. I, I mean, I can't watch a film like this without putting myself in it and seeing how badly I would probably come out. Like, I would like to think that I wouldn't claw anybody's face off to get to the water first. I would like to think that I would stand back and wait and see if uh, they drank it and got sick because who knows like what pipe that's coming out of. Yeah. Like, I would play it canny. I've been in escape rooms. I know how they go. <laughs> but, uh, no, I'm the kind of person that when my friends are talking about all the awesome stuff they do in the zombie apocalypse i'm admitting that i'm the one that's going to get bitten and then hide it from everybody until i turn <laughs> like i have no illusions about how well i would behave in in a crisis like this and i strongly suspect that i would be uh you know hanging back and waiting for everything to turn horrible uh, because i'm enough of a cynic to believe that it's going to get worse and from what i've read uh Buñal has said like said later in his life if he had made that movie later in life they absolutely would have turned on each other and it would have become a cannibalistic situation like he he feels that he didn't push himself far enough in that scenario and apparently it was the first movie that he made that he had complete control of uh, complete directorial and editorial and narrative control of mm. and even so he just he felt that he wasn't maybe he wasn't uh, either courageous or bitter enough at that time of life to push it as far as he Boy, thinks it should have gone this is a very courageous and bitter film <laughs> you're talking about a matter of degrees i mean i guess maybe the the question then ends up being like is this a film about how this specific type of person or these specific types of people would react in this circumstance or is this a film about how humans react would react in this 
situation. Well, I mean, like, I, I, maybe I, I, a, why not both? But because we don't, apart from the one servant who's left behind, and I think tellingly is the servant closest to the ruling class. Yeah. We don't get a read on how anyone else would react. So I, don't, I think I think the focus is squarely on these types of people. He eats paper, though. That's the one detail that kind yeah. of stands out for me about that servant is that he reasonably early in this situation uh, eats paper as a way to fool himself or his stomach into believing that he's having something of substance. Yeah, and that's and in the process of of trying to persuade one of the guests that it's okay, he tells this really fairly personal story about his life and his childhood and, and where he came from as a person and it's a very humanizing moment for somebody who's technically of the lower classes, which I don't feel like we get that with any of the the upper crust people. I think the fact that all of the other servants feel just as strong a compulsion to leave as the elites feel a compulsion to stay is really telling. I I think that ultimately this is a story about the upper class because – you know, in a way, it's certainly saying that the the lower classes have their own compulsions and have their own, you know, poor decisions and certainly have their own excuse making. But those are they're different. They're different in nature and they're different in where they end up. I think ultimately this is I mean, it's in, certainly insightful about human nature. Yeah. And I think in terms of class, I mean, I think we uh, the hypocrisy of that behavior, the fact that they, they are reduced to be behaving as, as they do is what really stands out. I mean, they may be they may be reacting as all humans would, but they feel like they're above that. They're above that kind of a base reaction to mm-hmm. the, to a situation like this. Uh, they whole... feel that way, but but uh, but in fact, when they're in that situation, they're going to react. I think uh, it's also a, a, a depiction of people who have never been punished for anything. In, in a weird way, this movie got me thinking about uh, the act of killing and the look mm. of silence, where you have these people who have been complicit in, if not genocide in, in this case, but at least repressing or suppressing the the uh, working class. And they've never suffered any punishment for it. And and there's a kind of moral rot that's set in in some ways. Maybe not for all the characters, but for some of them. Those films are such a, a chilling depiction of, of crime unpunished. And, and I think we get a, a smaller version of that here. Yeah, and I think The Act of Killing in particular is another terrific film about the excuses that people make mm. and the way they justify their behavior and the way – People lack empathy. If they're not put in a situation where they they develop empathy early in life, you can go through your life without it, and it leads to horrible places. I mean, I think one of the most interesting things here about this film is the complete lack of empathy they have for the lower classes. And that sequence that you cited in the intro where they talk about how, oh, you know, the lower classes just don't feel pain the way we do. And one of them compares the lower classes to a bull that she saw in a bullfight who wasn't expressing emotion and likens that to the lower classes. And just that leap from, I saw a suffering animal that I couldn't relate to, so I'm assuming it doesn't feel pain. And I'm just assuming that other human beings who are not of my social class are like that. Like that is an incredibly, incredibly dark series of connections. So I want to talk about the ending, uh, because they do finally liberate themselves from this situation. But the movie doesn't end there. The movie ends with them going to church and it also ends with a sequence where, outside of the church, the authorities, whoever the authorities are, are gutting down civilians. Um, so I want to break that down. What did you make of those two things together as a kind of exclamation point to this film? 
I mean, for me, the biggest takeaway from the church sequence, what you're what you're kind of circling around is the fact that once everybody's in the church, they experience it all over again. They can't mm-hmm. leave. Uh, the priests start making excuses to not leave. The- so I believe, something I read that pointed out that all the characters we've seen so far disappear once it starts in the in the church sequence, that we don't see them. Oh, that's interesting. Mm-hmm. I mean, you certainly see them during the actual church service, and you don't see them physically leave the church. Right. So I assumed they were there, but you're right. I don't remember them in any specific shots. Yeah, it's interesting. Huh. Mm. Well, I definitely don't know what to make of that. The fact that the same dynamic plays out in the church and that the last shot of the the movie is sheep going into the church, presumably, <laughs> you know, to provide the parishioners with food because they're going to be in there for literally God only knows how long. <laughs> to me, what that says is that this is not a movie about religion. I mean, you have the title, The Exterminating Angel. People, I've read a lot of interpretations of this film, and a lot of people really want to interpret it as God is visiting justice on the elite. God is punishing the bourgeoisie for their behavior. And the idea is that there is actually an angel of death keeping them in this room. To me, the church sequence says, you know, the the church itself is not holy. People who believe in God are not special. And the Catholic Church itself as an organization is not any better than the ruling class. Like to me that the whole church sequence is kind of Buñuel saying this is just as bad an organization. And it's not God punishing the elites because there is not a God who is specifically judging people who behave in this way because people who believe in God are being punished in the exact same way. It's like a, a surrealist force of nature, perhaps, but I, I just don't see it. I see the closing sequences, him saying, you know, this is not expressly a film about religious vengeance. Yeah, I'd be curious uh, about that reading, too, because from where I'm sitting, and again, I'm not an expert in Buñuel in religion, though religion does play a role in several of his movies, uh, uh, Simon of the Desert for one. The Milky Way is about a pilgrimage, so it's there as well. And, and I know that he he's gotten plenty of trouble from you know what the Catholic League or some one of these one of, some, some of these religious or organizations for his work. So he's considered, I guess, a sacrilege. Um, so I, I think we could safely say that his attitude toward uh, the church is is no more charitable than his attitude toward the upper crust. But I think like that juxtaposition between them being in this church still s- sort of cloistered away from what is happening outside, which is violent and real and perhaps maybe reflective of how dissent is suppressed in, say, uh, the Franco regime or any other type of regime. That seems kind of like a political statement that he's making with that juxtaposition there that, again, I don't necessarily have the historical context to, to, to identify exactly what. But again, I think, it, I think it transports pretty easily across eras and to the point where, where it's, it's still resonant. I mean, yeah. it's resonant in, in, in part in the way it recalls the Battle of Algiers. You know, it's a very similar sequence to what we get in the big battle sequence towards the end of Battle of Algiers. Oh, right, of just of open fire mm-hmm. into, a, into a crowd. But we have no context for it. I mean, that's the thing about Battle of Algiers is that we have nothing but context for, for why that happened. But here it's just it's really out of the blue. Mm-hmm. Um, it's also kind of, you know, what armies do. It's not an uncommon sight of, of, of the military suppressing masses in such a way. And I think we also have to know what it is that these people are walled off from, right? Like what is the reality on the ground that 
they with their in their fancy dinner party with their top hats and the mink coats are severed off from and so it gives you that little glimpse of that at at the end of this state sponsored violence that that extra layer you know right before we get the the bells ring and the movie ends well that's the end of the movie and so perhaps that's a good time to end this segment we'll be right back with feedback Now it's time for feedback. Due to the Toronto Film Festival, we've been banking podcast episodes a little earlier than usual, so we don't have feedback yet for our Stand By Me It pairing. However, we got tons of emails on our Soderbergh heist double feature. Keith, do you want to dig in? It's starting to feel like the pre-taped call-in show from Mr. Show. We're <laughs> slightly out of sync with everybody else. A little bit. But sure, this, is the, this letter is from Chris Lynch in Glasgow. Nice city. Chris writes... I just wanted to give you a bit of feedback on your recent Logan Lucky Ocean's Eleven episode, as I was slightly surprised that you didn't delve into an aspect of Logan Lucky that most struck me, specifically the interesting tension between the high-tech filmmaking ethos of Soderbergh and the defiantly analog world of the protagonists of Logan Lucky. Tatum's character almost makes a religion of not having a phone, not being on the map, and the lived-in authenticity of country music. However, when this culminated in the scene of his daughter explicitly turning away from her Rihanna number to singing John Denver's Country Roads, I was left feeling very mixed. I understand a lot of people have found this moment quite moving, and I see that it's tied into a major theme of this film, that of not giving up what is true and grounded in your local culture for the lure of commercialized globalization. However, I'm always uncomfortable with the religion of authenticity, something I know that Soderbergh is ambivalent about, as can be seen in the tension between his filmmaking methods and his film's subjects. Also, I'm not sure I like the image of a wee girl deliberately turning her back on a black female pop artist to embrace a male country music star. It just didn't sit right. Anyway, generally, I really enjoyed the film. I found it funny, aesthetically accomplished as ever, and surprisingly poignant. I just continue to grapple with the central ambiguity around technology and authenticity and how this sits in Soderbergh's work as a whole. Yeah, I was intrigued by this letter, and I'm not really sure what to make of it. I certainly didn't think at the time about what the implication might be of the daughter turning away from the Rihanna song and embracing this John Denver song, but I don't know. Yeah, I think you can't just say the subtext doesn't matter here. The fact that it's a pop song by a black female artist versus a male country artist, you know, that stuff, it's it's there. It's also her dad's favorite song. In a film where she's been pulled away from her father uh, subtly and unsubtly throughout, you know, it's, it draws her, it's a moment confirming that they have a relationship. I don't know. Yeah, I, I get it, though. It's it's interesting observation. Although, again, there's kind of a cause and effect there. I mean, the reason he sets that up as her dad's favorite song is because he's making a point about authenticity and about True. country and about this white male star that, uh, you know, was embraced as kind of the heart of Americana, even though, for instance, he was from West Virginia and apparently hadn't been there when he wrote the song. I mean, to me, like I'm usually, I would go so far as to say oversensitive about the racial and gender overtones of movies and decisions like this. For me, it almost felt like rejecting the Rihanna song was rejecting something that was older than her, was rejecting something that was, yeah, inauthentic to her, but less because embracing a song about West Virginia was low-tech and authentic to the world, and more about how it was authentic to her, which is to say, 
a little girl who is maybe too young to be plastering a thousand pounds of makeup on her face and dancing to something produced by like a kind of a sexed up pop, pop star. Yeah, it's it's doesn't get into pageant culture that much, but I mean, I think you're kind of counseling you to know a little bit about it. I mean, like, sort of this, like, as you say, super feminized, prematurely sexualized pageant culture. Uh, it is. Uh, this is probably not a girl who naturally gravitates to that kind of thing. Who probably would rather hang out with her dad and work on a car. So it is a turning back on all that as well. Yeah. I mean, to me, there is, I certainly see the point about kind of rejecting artificiality and maybe reifying uh, authenticity as this uh, idealized version of, of reality. And, and maybe it does play a little phony. I'm sort of curious to go back and revisit Soderbergh's other films, like looking for that particular message. But I have to say, like, I, I think this letter is really interesting and well-observed. That particular thing didn't trigger me. Yeah, I'm, I'm, and I want to just make a quick point, too, about this notion of the tension between uh, the high-tech filmmaking ethos of Soderbergh in the analog world, the protagonists of Logan Lucky, because I think they're closer together than the letter suggests. So the sense that the reason why Soderbergh has has embraced so much digital filmmaking and, and these what appear to be higher tech tools is actually to kind of get closer to the bone than he was when he was working in film. I mean, he, you know, he, when he started working digitally, he, he himself was starting to operate the camera. We talked about him taking more and more of a personal role in making his film. So there's a DIY quality to Soderbergh's work, particularly his, his later work that's quite unusual and may actually be closer to, you know, the analog world of uh, the Logan Lucky characters than we might assume. So that's my thought. So we also, speaking of Logan Lucky, had a lot of praise. We, in this group, had a lot of praise for Daniel Craig's unexpected turn uh, in the film. But one listener feels we should not have found it that unexpected. Tasha? So Kurt writes, I very much enjoyed your podcasts comparing Ocean's Eleven and Logan Lucky. However, I was a bit taken aback by your collective surprise at Daniel Craig's audacious performance in that latter film. You seem to have forgotten that unlike many of his predecessors in the role of 007, Craig didn't come to the Bond franchise having played similarly suave and debonair characters. I'm thinking specifically of Roger Moore and Pierce Brosnan. Prior to getting tapped for Bond, Craig had a very interesting, diverse filmography, playing very unique, distinctive roles. He was the roguish, dangerous handyman who romances an older woman in The Mother, the cowardly, venal, yet protected son of a mob boss in The Road to Perdition, an unhinged mental patient in The Jacket, and the repressed writer who finds his life spinning out of control after witnessing a tragic accident and coming in contact with an unbalanced stranger in Enduring Love. Craig's ability to vanish into a role in much the same way as Gary Oldman early in his career was one of the reasons the announcement of his casting as Bond was met with such incredulity. His proven acting skills are in large part the reason his Bond is imbued with a greater depth of character than his predecessors. Logan Lucky is less a departure for Craig and more a return to form. Oh, that makes a lot of sense. And I, and I, and I do, of course, remember Craig getting the job as 007 was sort of like, this ain't your grandpa's... <laughs> James Bond, this is going to be grittier, this is going to have uh, more of an edge to it, and so that explains the casting there. So I, I get it, though I think this is, has he ever been this colorful? Well, okay, I, this <laughs> this letter specifically cites four examples, uh, none of which I've seen. Yeah, that's just it. I've seen Road to Perdition, uh, which is kind of an underrated movie, but these are films that I, to my shame, I have not seen. So that that, that sort of Whitman sampler of uh, Daniel Craig uh, performances uh, <laughs> is something I, I I have not tasted. I like that metaphor. It's all uh, sort of what wouldn't you want to eat in a Whitman sampler? Like all, coconut? All, all coconut? All I don't coconut. Know. I don't know. I'll take your coconut. 
it. You can have my caramels. <laughs> to me, he's uh, he's one of those rock hard caramels that gets caught in your teeth. No, uh, <laughs> seeing this film, I, I think how I much said further at the can time, we take this? How much? <laughs> you it, wait, you don't like car- caramel? <laughs> I Whitman sampler caramels. Uh, They're made entirely out of rocks. I like them with lettuce. <laughs> <laughs> Are you kidding? The, the lettuce gets warm and it's so gross. Uh, can we say something about you know poking the bottoms uh, of the Whitman's chocolates? I like, I like to see a little what's more elevated a, a chocolate sampler than Whitman's. I think you can do a little better than that, right? I think you can, but I'm not sure you can do that much better Godiva, than for example, or a Giardelli's. Right? <laughs> I'm not sure you could do that much better than than Daniel Craig here. No, uh, this Logan Lucky, I think I said at the time, made me really want to revisit more of his film filmography and uh, now I've got a Whitman sampler of uh, titles that I should be revisiting apparently <laughs> okay we're going to leave that there uh, I, I did want to wrap this up with a couple of other notes on Soderbergh first some listeners mentioned that Stanley Kubrick's The Killing was the obvious choice to pair with Logan Lucky since both are heist pictures set at a racetrack we agree uh, the only trouble is that we paired Kubrick's Paths of Glory with Wonder Woman you know what a couple weeks before and didn't want to go back to Kubrick uh, that soon. Uh, second, listener Will strongly recommends the 2007 Spanish-language heist movie Ladron que roba al ladron, or Thief That Robs a Thief, as a good Ocean's Eleven supplement. Will says it rips off Ocean's shamelessly but has a lot of heart and makes the immigrant experience both text and subtext. So maybe check that out if you can track it down. Yeah, I remember Thief Who Robs Thieves uh, as a really entertaining movie in that same kind of... Uh, fast-moving, heist-oriented, thieves as gentlemen adventurers kind of way. Uh, it's a really entertaining film. What's that movie about, though? Um, well, it's about a thief, uh-huh. and he robs somebody, but that somebody is also a thief. Oh, that's mm. that's the big twist. Also, talking about pairings that we didn't make, we we talked quite a bit about potentially pairing uh, Logan Lucky with Sex, Lies, and Videotape and doing a, an end-to-end on Soderbergh mm-hmm. and considering his career. I think we also thought about uh, various other Soderberghs that might have run. In the middle of the podcast, we thought, that, we thought the bubble would be a pretty good one. <laughs> um, so as always, we appreciate when our listeners share their thoughts and their recommendations. To reach us, you can leave a short voicemail at 773-234-9730 or email us at comments at nextpictureshow.net. We may feature your response on a future episode or post it on Facebook for discussion. That wraps up this episode of The Next Picture Show. In part two, we'll see how our interpretation of Mother matches up with Darren Aronofsky's. Look for that later in the week, or better yet, subscribe to The Next Picture Show on Apple Podcasts or your podcatcher of choice. Find us at nextpictureshow.net, follow us at facebook.com slash nextpictureshow, and follow us on Twitter at nextpicturepod, so you'll always know when a new episode drops. Until then, wait, where did these sheep come from? See you next time. Caress the urine colored sun. Swarms of angels come to kill your sons. And there's nothing but black holes where the stars should have been. Nothing but black holes where the stars would be watching. 